Years ago, in 1981, the world was gripped with excitement about the up-and-coming wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. As the day approached, there was a full description from the media about this royal prince and his bride-to-be. This wedding had so much anticipation that it was billed as a fairy tale wedding and the wedding of the century. It was reportedly watched by an estimated global television audience of over 750 million people, including my mother. Yes, she was there. I, however, could care less about the wedding. I was merely 18 at the time and just didn't care. But there is a wedding and a marriage that we should all care much about. It's the wedding of King Jesus and his bride, the church. It is not just the wedding of the century, but the wedding of eternity. And it's the marriage of King Jesus and his bride, the church. As we continue in our series in the book of Psalms this summer, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles uh, or one of the church Bibles to Psalm 45. It's found on page 577 in the Church Bibles. Again, Psalm 45, found on page 577 in the Church Bibles. It's also on the wall behind me, and I would just encourage you to follow along as I, I will be reading Psalm 45, beginning at verse 1. Actually, you're starting before verse 1, which is good. That's fine. This is God's holy, infallible, life-giving, and life-transforming word. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and acacia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She'll be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. 
They'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Oh, Father God, we come before you giving you thanks for this day that you have set aside for us to worship as your children as we have gathered today, as people all over the world have gathered. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Allow your spirit to speak to us through your word today, through the preaching of the word. Help us, Lord God, to listen and to respond in obedience that you might be glorified, that you might change us and make us more like Jesus, your son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin to look at God's word in Psalm 45 this morning, we should first try and get an understanding of who the psalm was written by, who the psalm was written for, and the purpose of the psalm. And if you look at the beginning of Psalm 45, you will see it say, for the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a song of love. This is all in the Hebrew Bible. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that one or more of the sons of Korah uh, appear to have written this psalm. Of all of the psalms in the Bible, 11 of them are attributed to have been written by the sons of Korah. The first words of the psalm before even verse 1 says this, this psalm was written for the choir director. And there are 55 psalms that have this inscription to the choir director. It could be for the chief musician. And some have attributed the choir director as one of the sons of Korah, perhaps David, uh, and others, including myself, would say ultimately the choir director or the chief choir director is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our ultimate choir director. And as Pastor Mike has already mentioned, many, if not most, of the psalms were intended to be sung in worship. And all of our worship is to be unto Jesus as our Messiah King. The words before verse 1 also state according to the Shoshanim. Uh, and we are not completely certain what that word means. Some have stated that it means according to the lilies, um, it, which meant a specific tune. And it would have been a tune that the original audience would have understood in order to sing aloud these lyrics uh, in this, as they gathered for worship. Others have stated it was the Shoshanim was uh, to be played according to the Shoshanim, believing it was a six-stringed instrument of sorts. Uh, Maybe like a guitar, I don't know exactly, but we're not certain. And it is, says that this, this psalm is also a maskal. And some have said that the maskal is best understood as a contemplative poem meant to teach its hearers, like all of God's word is meant to teach its hearers. And it and more clearly states that the psalm is a song of love. And with a the theme of marriage, of course, it is a song of love. And so as we continue to look at this psalm together, it might be likened to a best man's speech at a, at a wedding reception. And I'm sure that some of you have heard terrible best man speeches. I have heard my share of terrible ones. And I've also heard some good ones. But uh, we would say that this might be the best one here because the writer of it is the Holy Spirit speaking through one or more of the sons of Korah. And this best man is giving his best, best man speech about 
the best, best man, namely the king, King Jesus, the groom. And so in verse 1, it says that he addresses these verses to the king. And what we see in verse 2 through verse 8 is a description of the king, of who he is and what he does. It is a description of the king, of who he is and what he does. The psalmist writes that, the, that his heart overflows with a good theme. This is indeed a good theme. Uh, this theme is a wonderful description of a marriage between the great and mighty king and his bride-to-be. And we, and we see that the heart of the psalmist is overflowing with joy and excitement and anticipation of this ultimate royal wedding and marriage. Perhaps this joy and excitement and anticipation is what many of you who are married, married uh, were feeling when you got engaged. Uh, it was a time of looking forward to a wonderful wedding and a commitment of marriage for a lifetime. This theme of marriage is what the psalmist is writing about. It's a good theme. And we, and we know that earthly marriages are, are filled with sin and troubles and, and some have even failed or do fail. Yet the marriage that this psalmist is writing about is ultimately about the marriage of King Jesus and his bride, the church. It is a marriage that will thrive and will never fail because of who King Jesus is. Some have tried to argue that this king that the psalmist is writing about is, is Solomon and King Solomon and his marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. And it could be that the psalm was also written about King Solomon and this foreign bride. But when we look further and deeper into the psalm more carefully, we see that the king was more than just a man. And so that's where we would ultimately say that this psalm is really speaking of King Jesus as the king. The psalmist begins his description of the king by comparing his beauty and his words. The psalmist compares the king's beauty and his words. Verse 2 says, you are fairer than the sons of men. This, this word fairer is just not used very much anymore. It's really an archaic word that people don't, don't use. We, fair, fair, we sing a hymn of that, what? fairest Lord Jesus, right? <laughs> uh, but, but it's not much used commonly. Uh, it, it's best understood as beautiful and attractive. And and what is this beauty or attractiveness that the, the psalmist is speaking of? It is not merely the beauty that, that mankind in general thinks is beautiful. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see this. God was choosing a new king to replace King Saul. Um, he was replacing them and he said, God said he would choose one of the sons of Jesse to be the new king. And Samuel the prophet was going to the family. He sees Eliab. He's the oldest. He's, he's good looking. He's tall in stature. And he says, surely this is the one of God's choosing. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, when we look at uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, we, we actually get a physical description of the future Messiah King. It says, starting in verse 2 of, of Isaiah chapter 53, For he grew up before like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. For he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the picture of the future Messiah King. And yet we see so many portraits and paintings of, of what people thought King Jesus looked like, that he was just a beautiful person. And, and, and the scriptures say, no, he was not. This, this, this prophetic picture of what Jesus, the Messiah King, what he physically looked like, was not one of outward beauty or attraction. The beauty that the psalmist is writing about is, is much deeper than skin deep. The beauty of Jesus, the Messiah King, is, is from within. He is beautiful in all of his attributes from the inside out. And, and the psalmist writes that there is no one that compares with his beauty. He is more beautiful than all of the sons of man, the psalmist says. He is the most beautiful in who he is and in what he does for us. The psalmist continues to describe the beauty of the king, speaking about his words. His words were beautiful. He says in verse 2 that grace poured out upon his lips. Grace is poured out upon his lips. Every word from King Jesus is full of grace. As we look at the gospel of Luke chapter 4, we see this fulfilled as Jesus began his earthly ministry. And it says that after Jesus was there at the time of worship, they, Jesus read from the book of Isaiah and he sat down and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 22, And all who were there were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. You can just see the picture. The gracious words were falling from his lips. They were amazed. And even his enemies, Jesus said in the gospel, uh, of enemies of Jesus, they say in the gospel of 7, verse 46, that never has a man spoken the way that this man speaks. And so we get a picture of a description of, of the word of Christ, God's word in Psalm 19, where we know that every word from King Jesus is full of grace because it is perfect. His words are perfect and restore our souls, says Psalm 19. His words are right and rejoice the heart. His words are pure and they enlighten our eyes. One commentator writes, by his word, he created the world. He instructed the ignorant. He resolved the doubtful. He comforted the mourners. He reclaimed the wicked. He silenced his adversaries. He healed diseases. He controlled the elements and he raised the dead. By his grace filled words, we are given faith to believe and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. The psalmist continues with his description of the king by announcing his strength and his power in verse 3. He announces his strength and his power. The psalmist refers to the king as the mighty one. And this is the same word in Hebrew that is used when, when God called Gideon to be his leader of his people. And he called Gideon and he said, you will be my strong and mighty warrior. The psalmist is prophetically looking ahead to King Jesus as our mighty warrior. And we know that King Jesus is our strong and mighty warrior who has already defeated the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And he did this in his perfect life and in his death and in his resurrection. Yet until Jesus comes for his bride, the church, we are still under attack, aren't we? But King Jesus says that he will never leave his bride alone and he promises to protect his bride, the church. The psalmist describes King Jesus with a sword on his thigh. 
What a picture we have of King Jesus with a sword on his thigh. This, this sword we have described for us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, both of joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the sword of the Lord that opens up our eyes, isn't it? And gives us faith to trust in Jesus. And it is also the sword of the Spirit, Spirit found in Ephesians chapter 6, which is part of God's armor, which is to be used to protect us and to help us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In verse 6, we also see a picture of the psalmist describe the arrows of the king as well. It says that his arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under him and his arrows are in the heart of his enemies. King Jesus uses his arrows to pierce the heart of his enemies. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that we are all born as enemies of God. And we need to have the sharp arrows of King Jesus pierce our own hearts to convict us of our sin. We need the sharp arrows of his word to show us his truth and his righteousness, that he is the only way. It is these sharp arrows that shows us his hatred for sin and wickedness and his love for righteousness. We need to ask King Jesus to pierce our sinful hearts and to give us a new heart to believe and to trust in him alone. And yet, it is these same sharp arrows from King Jesus that will destroy his enemies and those who repent, who do not repent of their sin and will not believe. In verse 4, the psalmist continues to describe the king by declaring his majesty and his character. It is a picture of declaring his majesty and his character. It's a, it's a picture of the king in his glory and his greatness and his magnificence. The psalmist is describing not just any king, but the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the majestic one, the mighty one. The psalmist describes the king as riding on victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Once again, we are able to see these uh, words being prophetically fulfilled in the person of Jesus, our King. Jesus himself declared that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth that could set you free. He is the truth that you can know that could set you free. Jesus was also the epitome of, of meekness and humility. He, being the King of kings, left his rightful throne in heaven and became a man. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes his humility. Jesus humbled himself, being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And yet this humble king who died on a cross for our sins was raised from the dead. And on the third day, God exalted him to his rightful throne. It is verse 6 of our passage this morning, however, that sort of seals the deal that it wasn't just Solomon as the king. Verse 6 of our passage this morning, the psalmist clearly reveals the king's eternal nature as God the Son. He reveals his eternal nature as God the Son. The psalmist says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's speaking to the king, referring to him as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The psalmist is declaring that this king is God and that his throne is eternal. 
And we can also confirm this looking at the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews chapter 1 quotes from this psalm showing us who this God is. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, we have a description of Jesus, God the Son. And it says in verse 2, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he had made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by his word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in verse 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verse 6, saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. What a beautiful picture and what a clear understanding that this passage is ultimately referring to Jesus as our king. These verses show the fulfillment of Jesus being the promised king from the line of David who would reign as our king for all eternity. This picture of the king on his throne forever and ever shows his dominion, his power, his rule, and his authority over all things including our lives. In the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, Jesus says, he who overcomes I will grant to him to sit down with me on my Father's throne. Here we see two persons of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son, ruling and reigning on the throne. And looking back at our psalm in verse 45 or 7, we see the psalmist say, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Oftentimes when we see a king being anointed in the Bible, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit's anointing of this new chosen king. And so one could argue that we have a picture of the triune God, one God yet three distinct persons in our psalm today. The psalmist also describes the king as having a scepter of uprightness for his kingdom. A scepter is this is rod or staff often adorned with gold and jewels. Uh, that a king would hold to indicate that he is the one in authority. Boys and girls, you remember this week we learned about a king and his scepter. Everybody remember the story of Esther, boys and girls, who were here for Camp Treasure Island? We learned the story of Esther, and in this story we saw how important the king's scepter was. No one was able to approach the, king's, the king without his extending his royal scepter. And in uh, Esther chapter 8, we see that King Ahasuerus extends his golden scepter to Esther, allowing her to stand before the king. What a, what a great picture, right? And so as we think about Psalm 45 and this majestic description of the king of kings, we begin to understand that, that none of us are, are worthy to stand in the presence of the king of kings. None of us can stand in the presence of King Jesus because of the sin that separates us from God. The only way that we can stand in the presence of the king is for King Jesus to extend his royal scepter to us. King Jesus died and rose again in order to extend his royal scepter of grace and forgiveness to those who have been given faith to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And so in verse 9 of chapter 45, we see that the king has graciously extended his scepter to his bride, the queen. It is at this point that the psalmist gives us a description of the bride and what she is to do. In verse 9 through 16, we have a description of the bride and what she is to do. Again, some have argued that this is a 
a picture of King Solomon's bride, his royal marriage to the daughter of the king of Egypt to form an alliance. And it may have had that dual meaning, yet it continues to have such a deeper meaning and more significant meaning for you and I today. As I have already stated, the psalmist, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to us about this king as, as Jesus Christ, the king of all kings. And therefore, we're able to deduce that this bride is the church. The church is his bride, the queen. The church is his bride, the queen. By the church, I mean all of God's chosen people. His treasured possession is his bride. Those who have professed faith, trusting in Christ alone for their, salva their, their salvation. We, we see in verse 9 a description of his bride, the queen, as standing at the right hand of the king, dressed in gold from Ophir. The, the, this bride, who would become his queen, was granted access to stand at the right hand of the king. He extended his golden scepter of forgiveness and had her dressed in the finest of gold from Ophir. I want us to think about how we are dressed before we put our trust in Christ our King. Before we are granted access to stand in the presence of King, our, our clothing and our appearance before the King is, is just filthy rags. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, we have this picture of Joshua the high priest. And he's just like you or I, but you and I, but he was clothed in filthy garments, it says. And the Lord said that he would remove his filthy garments, saying, see, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is what Christ our King does for us as his bride. We come before him with nothing. In fact, the prophet Isaiah describes our condition before him, before being saved in Isaiah 64, verse 6, saying, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment because of our sin. But when God gives us faith to trust in Jesus, he clothes us in his righteousness. In Psalm 61 verse 10 it says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. The description of the king's bride dressed in the gold of Ophir is a picture of being dressed in the purest of gold. This gold that was used, the gold of Ophir, is what King David was using to build the temple. He was lining everything with this gold of Ophir. And this, this picture here is what we are being dressed with. The bride being dressed in this gold of Ophir represents being dressed in purity, having no sin. It re represents being dressed in the most precious of all things, the righteousness of Christ. And this is what the king does for his bride, you and I, the church. This is what King Jesus has done for you and for me. The church is made beautiful by the king. The church, the bride of Christ, is made beautiful by what he has done for you. And so we have done nothing to make ourselves beautiful. It's what Jesus has done for us. We are beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. And so what should our response be as his bride? What is the bride of Christ, our King, supposed to be doing? If we look at verses 10 and 11, we see that the bride of Christ, his church, is supposed to listen to the King and to bow down before the King. We are supposed to listen and bow down to our King. 
Verse 10 says, listen, O daughter, and give attention and incline your ear. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us to listen, right? It is only by the Holy Spirit that we are able to listen. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as we listen to Christ our King, we are not merely to be hearers only, as it says in James chapter 1. It says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word only and not a doer, he is, he's like a man who looks at himself in the, in the mirror and he looks at his natural face in the mirror and once he walks away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But, but the one who looks looks intently at the perfect law of Christ, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become forgetful here, but becoming an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Because we are Christ's bride, we are to bow down to him alone as our Lord and King. Let us not be like many of God's people in the Old Testament and even today who, who have refused to listen to God's prophets and have become unfaithful. Not only are we to, to listen and bow down to Christ our Lord and King, the bride Christ church is to leave and to cleave. You've heard those words in, in weddings before. Christ's church is also to leave and to cleave. In verse 10 of our passage, it says that the king's bride is to, to forget her people and her father's house. Once again, some have argued that this bride is to be the, the daughter of the king of Egypt. She was raised worshiping false gods and false idols. And if she was to uh, unite in marriage to Solomon, she was supposed to forget her people and her father's house. She was supposed to uh, forsake these false gods and idols and cling to the one true God of her husband, King Solomon. But once again, we see that the Solomon is more clearly pointing not just to Christ as our king, but we are that foreign bride. The psalm is pointing to us as being the foreign, idol-worshiping enemy of God who needs to leave the sinfulness of our past and cling to Jesus or cleave to Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, and as our King. King Jesus is calling us to repent of our sin. This means that we are to turn from whatever sin that we are bowing down to and to turn to Jesus, the one who has saved us from our sins, and bow down and worship him instead. The church, his people, are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the one who has made us beautiful. We are called to listen to him and bow down to him as our Lord and King. We are called to leave the sins of our past and cleave to him. And as the bride of King Jesus, this should cause us to rejoice and to produce heirs. As the bride of King Jesus, our response should be to rejoice and to produce heirs. Being the bride of Christ should cause us to rejoice over all that Christ has done for us. We need to rejoice that Christ has laid down his life for his bride. He is his unending love for us. He laid down his life by dying on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. And then he made us beautiful by giving us his righteousness. We can rejoice knowing that King Jesus has promised that he is coming back for his bride. We see this promise made in the book of Hosea chapter 2 where the Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth to you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
In the book of Revelation, we, again, we have this picture of this betrothal as having already taken place, giving us reason to rejoice. It, it says, starting in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We are living in the age of the already, but not yet. This means that we are very much already married, very much betrothed, yet we are still awaiting for King Jesus to come and to bring us home to his royal palace. We have a picture of this, of this when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 14. He says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus, our King, is coming back for his bride, his people, his church. What are we doing to get ready? What are we doing to get ready? Our passage in Psalm 45, verse 15, says that we should be rejoicing, as it says, and it also says that we should be producing heirs, so to speak. Verse 16, it says, In place of your fathers will be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. You may ask, how are we to produce heirs? Well, we are to produce heirs, future children of the king, by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done. We have been doing that all week at Camp Treasure Island. We've been sharing the good news to these future princes of the king. What a, what a glorious thing to be doing. Amen. And this is what we are supposed to be doing in our homes as well. And in the community where we live, live as, as the bride of Christ, we are to produce heirs by sharing the gospel. Psalm 78 verse 5 and following says that we are to teach our children that the next generation may know them. The children yet unborn and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. And so as we see this description of King Jesus and his bride, the church, we're able to see the result of this marriage. We are able to see the result of this marriage and that it is going to be eternally blessed marriage. Marriage. It is going to be an eternally blessed marriage. We know from God's word that this is a marriage that will never fail. It will thrive. God says. It is the perfect marriage where King Jesus loves his bride unconditionally. He loves us so much, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ Jesus gave himself up for his bride, dying for her. He did this to sanctify her, to make us more like Christ. He did this to cleanse us and to wash us with the water of the word that he might present his church, the bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How blessed we are to be married to King Jesus. Verse 17 tells us that the name of King Jesus will be remembered. The name of King Jesus will be remembered in all generations. Kings have come and kings have gone, right? Royal marriages have come and royal marriages have gone. Famous people have also come and gone. But the name 
that will be remembered forever and ever is the name of Jesus. There is only one name that will be remembered in all generations. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. It is only by trusting in the name of Jesus and what he has done that anyone can be saved. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And knowing this, that his name will be remembered, it says that we are to give thanks forever and ever. The peoples will give thanks forever and ever. That is our response as the bride, as being chosen by the king. We are to live our lives full of gratitude. And so as we think about what King Jesus has done, that, that he has betrothed us as his bride and what he has done for us, we are called to give our lives back to him in thanksgiving. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you are the one true king. You are the king who loved us so much that you chose to betroth us, a bride that was full of sin. And yet you died for us. You have forgiven us of our sin. You have clothed us with the righteousness, with your righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that this is a marriage that will last forever, that you will help us to thrive. We thank you that you are here to protect us and that you will one day bring us home once again. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.